Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 65, The Three Faces of Spirit. Where is awareness locating itself? Where does awareness tend to locate itself, and how is this important in our experience and understanding of the Buddhist path of awakening? Listen in as Diane Musho Hamilton joins us to discuss what Ken Wilber calls the three faces of spirit. This is part two of a two-part series. Kicking it old school here mm. with three special big geeks. Uh, Ryan Olke, my guest. Hello. And, well, he's not really a guest. He's <laughs> kind of the host. He's a fixture. <laughs> but on the last interview, I did most of the talking, so he I, felt like he was a guest. Yeah, I, I, I feel more special calling myself a guest. Yeah, so he's our special guest. I'm a special guest. And uh, we have two more special guests. Diane Musho hamilton who we interviewed in our last episode. And also Kelly Sosan Bear, who's joined us before. She's a certified geek of the round table. And uh, today we're going to be. She has special standing at the round table. <laughs> you got a certificate on your way I out. I think the chair you're in, since you've been there so many times now, it's just going to have to become your chair at the round table. You could Sweet. etch your name in the, yeah. in the yeah. chair. Can I have my name wow. put on it? Yeah. Instead of like etching your name on a wall, like a green room, we'll just have the chairs. Yep. I like it. Yeah. And I to, like it. And today we wanted to do kind of a more roundtable discussion. Now, for a true Buddhist geek roundtable, we just have to notice the impulse of her identity to grab a hold of that chair and put her name on it. We might have to pull the rug out. <laughs> that's why you're here, Diane. That's why, that's why I'm here. Give it a good tug. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, so we wanted to talk a little bit about just some of the topics we discussed with Diane, specifically around Ken Wilber's integral theory and and more specifically around his uh, conception of first, second, and third person perspectives, that these are perspectives we live in and through pretty much all the time. As Diane mentioned uh, in the previous interview, that they're very subtle. They're so subtle we can barely perceive them sometimes. And so we wanted to use those I, we, and it, or first, second, and third person, or what Ken calls the three faces of spirit, to kind of jump off into just a free-form discussion about the import of those perspectives and how they relate to Buddhist practice and theory. The three perspectives are all simultaneously present and every tradition has them, but different parts of the perspectives are emphasized. I mean, if you're practicing Zen, you're doing a very powerful first person phenomenological inquiry, internal inquiry. But at the same time, you're also participating in relationship to your teacher, which is in the second person in relationship to Sangha members which is in the second person, even the masters or the lineage is there's a relational quality to that. So you're participating in second person mm-hmm. and in third person, you're receiving the teachings and they're the objects of practice and there is the environment that we're practicing in. They're all always simultaneously present, but there's just something very helpful about noticing where our awareness is locating itself, whether it's in a subjective experience, whether it's in a relational exchange or whether you're in a pure kind of witnessing relationship to an object. Like Kelly's chair. Precisely, <laughs> that she's already put her name on. <laughs> we have a great thou relationship, me and the chair. Yeah, it's person. moving from the third to the second, I guess. <laughs> and being appropriated. 
Now, the question I have for you is whether or not you're going to create, now that you've appropriated and territorialized the chair, <laughs> are you going to allow for get other guests to sit there or under some conditions, circumstances, contracts? Ah, interesting question. I guess, just to be honest, it would have to depend on my relationship with the person who wanted to sit in the chair. And then uh, I, it seems like the parallels you drive you're, uh, with the Buddhist tradition are so obvious in that one. Well, yeah, because she could have said, every person who comes in is me. Why, why would I make a distinction? That would have been a first-person response. She made a second-person response, which is the quality of our relationship. And a third-person response would be if they met certain criteria and were able right. to pay some money, they might be allowed to sit in my chair, right. depending on how my first-person subjectivity wow. is operating that day. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. Uh, how that relates to the way that dharma and lineage happens. Do people become lineage holders because of their first-person realization? Is it because they have a good relationship to the teacher? Is it because they know all of the, the scriptures and they're good, you know, they're good monks, they're good scholastics, they can continue that uh, learning throughout time, you know? Mm-hmm. And all these things obviously are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the ideal well, is supposed to be all three of them. But ideally, it right. Ideally, but it doesn't happen like, I think, oftentimes, well, I don't know if often, but... A lot of times, one of one of the three are more emphasized as passing on lineage. Well, there there has to be in the in the Zen tradition. One would imagine that the teacher and student that mind to mind transmission is actually the perceived sameness, the actual sameness of one mind. That there the transmission. It's not actually a transmission. It's a recognition of what already is which is your mind and the teacher's mind are one, mm-hmm. right? And then the relationship problems come later. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, when that same mind is not doing the same thing that the teacher would like, right. then that's right. a problem. And then there's, there are people like teachers that just have a real strong acumen for running organizations. Sure, and, great leaders. Uh, yeah. Richard Baker Roshi comes to mind as mm-hmm. just a phenomenal organizational mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't know him personally, but I definitely through the stories that there are other issues, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, with the interpersonal. Right. And uh, although he could run several different companies and the sangha, like he was having some major issues with people in the community, and ended up being Suzuki Roshi gave his dharma transmission to him. So you got to assume that there's the one mind recognition mm-hmm. between those two, and such a fascinating uh, connection there with the three perspectives. Mm-hmm. There's simply, again, it's important to remember that their points of view, their perspectives, they're a way we locate awareness, but they're not fixed, nor are they necessarily ultimately real. You know, subject and object is a distinction that we make. It appears in the, some of the brain science literature that I've been reading recently says that the, the subject-object split is pretty hardwired in the brain. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you, right now, if I ask you just to start rubbing your thumb and your index finger together, if you start doing that, then you will naturally probably start to relate to one as subject and one as object. The one is rubbing the other. One is exploring the other. It's very hard to hold the two in a kind of mutuality. There's, there's also this question of you know, awakening or non-dual understanding. It's very hard to rewire the brain to have that be the more of the basis on which we operate in the world. But then these perspectives are still happening. Uh, and that's the, I think there's some confusion about that, that somehow enlightenment means you no longer are able to like operate in the normal way, that, that you can't have your feelings hurt in relationship. There's all sorts of weird ideals around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing I've, I've always found interesting and then also 
wanted to counteract intellectually, which is that no, actually enlightenment doesn't fundamentally change your relationship to the world. Well, it can be argued both ways, but I like to argue it that way because it seems like most people tend to think that it have these weird ideals about it. So. Well, we should just notice like in this moment when you're speaking about enlightenment, right. what perspective are you taking? Well, verbally I'm taking a third person perspective, right. Right. but and then there's an attempt to touch in with what I'm talking about beautiful. too. Okay. Enlightenment itself can't be realized as an object. It can only be realized as subject. Mm. Right. I keep looking for it as an object, but uh, I have to say I haven't found it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but there are things that can stand in. You know, earlier we said ideally about the lineage being all three of those perspectives or having some healthy uh, occurrence of each perspective. But I'm starting to wonder about that, if that's actually true. You know, when we talk about lineages breaking off, there's a lot of issues like that. Well, what if the student teacher don't, they no longer have that second person relationship in a sort of form that we expect it to be? then all of a sudden their first person perspective is no longer valid or something's wrong with it. The realization is not as valid because they don't have these the other two or, or one of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there is some ideal of a person having all three, but then there comes in a question of like, well, if one is missing, then they don't have the others. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think what you're saying is true in the sense that, you know, human beings we're we're just interesting. It's like what you and I, Vince were talking about earlier when we talked about how lineages multiply and break off and different mm. things happen and cell, right. cells divide right. and people come together and people separate and things happen. And it's not, you know, one of the interesting things is we look back through a lineage and much of what we now relate to as the lineage, including the teachers and the teaching is constructed that we give continuity to history and we give continuity to what we understand to be the lineage and even the, the doctrine but in fact, the actual lived experience was much more chaotic. Mm. And there were many things that are just simply the challenge of being human, including alienation from your teacher or from your sangha or from mm. the tradition and then coming back or whatever it happens to be that the way that we construct a kind of continuity to what it appears happened in the past when in fact the lived experience, the firsthand experience was much more chaotic and strange. I mean, it's happening mm. in our time mm. and it's interesting to watch even within the American Buddhist scene to see political struggles that happen or the, you know, natural tension between traditionalists and people who are more innovators. You talked about teachers who've struggled with their communities or teachers who have a really incredible creative entrepreneurial spirit, but don't look anything like what the tradition was supposed to turn out. Mm. And yet people are learning an amazing amount and, Mm. and having really profound waking up experiences right. in very non-traditional contexts. Right. I th- I'm thinking of uh, Geshe Michael Roach, who, whose teacher told him you need to go and uh, become like a successful businessman. Like this mm-hmm. is the next phase of your practice. And he went and started a diamond company and uh, turned into like a multi, multi-million dollar company, hundred million dollars in sales kind wow. of thing. And he, it's so strange. I mean, he did that because of the diamond cutter sutra. He's like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I'm definitely going to do something with diamonds because of the diamond cutter. The diamond sutra, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Buddhist history is happening. I mean, Buddhist history is here right now, and we see, I mean, it's so amazing. One of the things about this teaching and this tradition is that it, it's so organic, you know, and that it mm-hmm. just seems to have a way of taking shape and assuming the, you know, it's like the teachings in drag, depending on, what culture they, they kind of take hold in. And at the same time, 
it can also be really sensitive, a kind of subtlety of awareness and perception develops that's easily wiped out. You know, Buddhism was wiped out in many parts of the world by, you know, other religious impulses that were stronger, more defiant. Right. And I remember when the um, the Taliban blew up those thousand-year-old Buddhist statues, do you remember, in, mm-hmm. in uh, what's mm-hmm. now Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Dalai Lama's comment was just so radical. And basically what he said was that, you know, the fundamental teaching of Buddhism is impermanence. Mm. And, you know, to, to have your religious icons mm. that are a thousand years old and actually provide an economy to that particular part of the world, to have those destroyed, and then to be able to respond with that particular kind of equanimity is both radical on the one hand, but, but it's also a certain kind of vulnerability mm. in the tradition itself. Right. Because it doesn't tend to move to want to sustain and protect itself in a very particular kind of way. You know, I was giving Kelly a hard time about her chair, you know, like give up that attachment to that chair. No. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> it's me. It's mine. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so Buddhism is, is like amazing in its ability to take a hold, but I think it's also amazingly vulnerable to being squashed when you have a more kind of dogmatic or mythic, mentality that wants to step in and get rid of it doesn't take its own side very powerfully if you will yeah and that's another piece of the well, you just said mythic that another piece of the integral theory which is so radical is that there's a recognition that there actually there's some sort of development that's happening in cultures mm-hmm. over time and it happens mm-hmm. in each culture and we don't have to get into real specifics of that but mm-hmm. that's just kind of a recognition that can seen across multiple kind of domains of intellectual you know exploration and he brings that very much into the question of Buddhism and, and recognizing that, for instance, you said mythic. Uh, so a lot of these traditions grew up in these kind of mythic cultures that mm-hmm. had myth as the main way of understanding things. And, mm-hmm. and so there's, like you're saying, like they're in drag, like they take on the form of the cultures they're in in many cases. And, and what the recognition of development is actually some of those uh, forms are better than others mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Ken's articulated what you're getting at in one example that I think is really one that's good for our time, which is the master-disciple relationship or the guru-disciple relationship, depending on the tradition. And that in a, a mythic membership, development of consciousness, that authority is concentrated in an external god or in a spiritual leader. And that right. the, the practice is really kind of subsuming, you know, it comes out of organizing that more individualized, raw, out-of-control energy, right. and it organizes and locates authority in a particular place, and everybody grows to identify with authority and to fall into line in an important way developmentally. Right. So that the master-disciple relationship where authority is concentrated like that is in a certain way very straightforward. Right. And we see that very clearly in the Zen tradition. The master-disciple relationship is the vehicle through which the teaching is delivered. Right. But it still has a very mythic quality to it in the sense that the authority is in the teacher and you're the disciple. So what Ken's question raises is then when consciousness develops right. and it moves through a secular materialist and a more individuated rational rational phase yeah. and then it becomes pluralistic and it sees the validity of all different perspectives and then you come to a teacher relationship having developed through that, right. how does a student who's moved through those levels of consciousness or through, through those waves, if you will, mm-hmm. how do they actually surrender to the teacher and give up a perspective? Right. So he says that the very mm-hmm. construction comes from right. the mythic development and that for a postmodern student, right. 
Like and, you, you, and you were talking about that earlier yeah. in the interview. Like you had some trouble with the uh, yeah. with the forms. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, this is kind of strange. Absolutely, yeah, it's I, very challenging. And I think of uh, like the rational perspective, like uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's in the way it works in science, is you get a bunch of people together and they have a hypothesis and they test it and they check with each other. And there's, uh, I mean, there there are people that are really well known that have real skill, like Einstein, for instance, with theoretical physics. He was. Uh, extremely respected for his knowledge, but that didn't mean he was like a guru uh, or a, le- a spiritual leader. I mean, some people maybe made him that way, but for the most part, it's like no, he's got Although this theory. You might, you might say was this, you might say he had mystical inclination. Oh, definitely, definitely, no doubt about it. But then, how would that look in a Buddhist community? I've, I've had teachers like that. They don't want to be like in a teacher role with me. They just want to be a fellow adventurer, and I hear that a lot of the times. Yeah. Uh, communicated like you know check in with me about what you've experienced and we'll talk about it and Spirit, spiritual friend yeah like a spiritual friend of sorts uh, if i'm not mistaken in the theravadan tradition the spiritual friend is more the norm than the master disciple relationship yeah if yeah I, if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. uh, yeah i think or the think guru so. disciple relationship yeah. in tibetan buddhism yeah, yeah it's a little different it seems like it's interesting though because sometimes at least in the tibetan tradition i balk at that sometimes because of where i think they're coming from so it's not this evolving or new teacher student relationship. It's more that like, I can't actually have that realization only actually the master who's the authority can have that. So like, I I don't know. I just wonder about that sometime where it's like, well, are you really evolving? Are you just kind of adopting a certain perspective and kind of imposing that upon there, but you're not actually adding in anything to me. I think it's different Theravada tradition because from what I know, that is the norm, but it's different because Tibetan tradition is very much the guru um, student relationships. So when it starts changing, I'm curious about how it's actually changing, you know? Mm-hmm. So just wondering. <laughs> yeah. My, I think my own teacher and I, it, it's an interesting, Ken's perspective brings a very important dimension to the conversation as American teachers struggle with their own training as students and then with students to, to really, you know, one, one Zen master said that his, his job, you know, as the Buddha said, his job was simply to, liberate suffering. He had one teaching and one teaching only. And I've heard one master say that, or it's said that one master says that his job is to break down, untie knots and break down barriers. And what is the best second person form for Mm -hmm. that to actually be able to happen Mm -hmm. and how much authority and how much submission on the part of the student and how much self-responsibility on the part of the student and how much, you know, in our culture, what's going to be the optimal relationship and I think we're really in flux around that whole question and I I would credit my teacher with being really quite you know I think he's living that question in a really Mm. organic and quite beautiful way he's willing to be a friend he asserts himself as a master he's very clear about what he means by submission but he's also feeling his way because this American student is a very different person Mm. than a Japanese student particularly one 200 years ago, 300, 400, 600, 800 years ago. Right, right. And I wonder what you I, just... I just whipped backwards in time. <laughs> 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 I wonder what you're... I mean, what, what you're describing there, it, it sounds like with your teacher Genpo at Roshi, that there's a, a sense of fluidity in himself. He's able to go between those different relationships or perspectives. Mm-hmm. He's very fluid, yeah. And uh, I wonder if that's what would characterize, you know, these, these latter stages of development that Ken mm-hmm. gets at. Mm a fluidity of perspective of being mm-hmm. able to flow in and out of the ones that are most helpful. In and at, at the yeah. same time, what I'll say is when push comes to shove right. in relationship to Roshi, he's the master and right. he, he understands very clearly what he is 
empowered by you to do, mm-hmm. which is sometimes to annihilate your concept of self mm. and how you limit yourself by that very view you hold of who you are. And mm-hmm. it's not always fun. Right. So there's some sort of agreement going into a relationship with him. Well, <laughs> or maybe it's implicit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's worth paying attention to. I mean, Roger Walsh's book on essential spirituality, he says, if you want to learn something, be around the people who have that particular right. trait. Right. And if you want a spiritual teacher, then you should look. And I've heard other teachers also talk about how rigorous you should be about what it is you want to learn and whether the person who you're studying with is embodying what it is you want to learn. Because the implicit contract, whether it's implicit or explicit, is very clear. And I've heard Patrick Sweeney say that in relationship to a lot of the Tibetan masters he's been around, he just quakes in his boots, you know, his knees mm-hmm. knock, because mm-hmm. he can feel that his, the comfort zone of self is going to be challenged in mm-hmm. relationship to them. So it, it, it's very exciting on the one hand and, and unnerving on the other. So related to that, I was just thinking about the difficulty then coming back around to what we were talking about earlier with uh, the difficulty for Westerners, you know, because we have this different perspective we're operating from individual, more individual, more like I'm going to go out and do it myself. And then the relationship to the teacher who could, you know, in some ways really challenge uh, many of our held identities and assumptions and how often um, it could be easy to say the teacher's, really doing that challenging me and i'm like okay i i don't want to be challenged right now and so like this is you know this is too much you're going past my barriers and like you're potentially abusing me and and then the real cases where there is abuse and there is interpersonal like the teacher's not doing it skillfully enough and that there's so many stories of that in american buddhism already i guess this whole exploration for me begs the question when do we recognize or how do we recognize when there's like a direct challenge that could really support us if we can just be with it you know and then how do we recognize when we're mm-hmm. actually potentially being abused or there's something unskillful happening in relationship to a master like teacher mm-hmm. or even spiritual friend you know i mean i don't i haven't personally been in an experience where that was happening where it's any source of abuse so it's hard for me to say but I haven't had that happen i've heard either, that as an issue for a lot of practitioners. It sounds like that whole answer to that question can be really messy because you, you throw in different like emotional capacities and then you have cultural things like well, what, maybe what they're different doing. different histories. Different, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it can be really tough to figure that out when it does happen. Yeah. And oftentimes there's the male-female dynamic, which is most of these cases, it's a male teacher and a female student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't really speak to the uh, female side of the equation, so I thought maybe... <laughs> have you ever read the article in WIE magazine, um, Women Who Sleep With Their Gurus and Love uh, It? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, I didn't read that. And that's kind of the alternative perspective, yeah. which is like women aren't completely uh, culpable. They're, I don't know if I'm using the word culpable properly, but it seems relevant somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I mean, women, it's not that they're completely victims to the guru type thing. Yeah. They also have some sort of culpability. I'm just to throw that in there just to <laughs> well, let's shake hope it that, up. that women are capable of some level of self-determination. I wouldn't want to deprive us right. of that. Right. Mm. But that's not to say again that, that every woman who comes into contact with a spiritual teacher who's, who she's empowered, she's actually given power to knows necessarily how to navigate that territory for herself, you know? And, and so for me, it's a koan. It's, it's a little bit unsolvable. It's something that has to be lived and worked out because mm-hmm. everything we endeavor to 
expand into requires coming up against resistance and difficulty in our own boundaries and our limited concepts of who we are. And there's no way, if you're not willing to experience that, that you're going to be able to really have deep insight. It's right. just not going to happen. Right. On the other hand, you know, this is why I think the teaching of submission and self-responsibility, it's so important that those two are coupled in a certain way because for a teacher who's being conscious and compassionate, what you would hope is that their engagement of whatever kind with a student would include the student's best interest and that they'd be able to be aware of that. And then a student hopefully could be supported in doing what was best for them also, but it just doesn't always happen in human life. You know, these things get messy. It's a very interesting thing because we hurt others and we are hurt and that there, that seems to be kind of built in. And so then the question becomes, where does one draw the line and where does one actually even get the capacity to draw a boundary that's necessary when they don't have the capacity? It's a developmental developmental question that's mm-hmm. not so good to answer. And, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully Sangha contributes to that also. And I think it's been important for the kind of, you might say, masculine privilege of sleeping with your female students for that to really be challenged, which I think it has been. Mm -hmm. And so there's certainly much more awareness on the part of students and of teachers about that, the potential problem there. Yeah. But I think human beings always run into trouble when they try to regulate the erotic. There's always going to be a wildness to it. That's not, you can, you can pin it down in the conventional if you want to, but it's, the life force and there's a certain freedom and wildness to it that's going to persist join us for the fourth annual buddhist geeks conference hosted in partnership with mindful cyborgs and shambhala sun from october 16th through the 19th in beautiful boulder colorado This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.